for those that are joining us online that aren't in Israel, um, that aren't aware of what's happening here in, in Israel, just to give you a quick update, uh, after about a week, more than a week of continued rocket fire and, and things going on here in Israel, on Friday, uh, Israel entered into a, a non-conditional ceasefire uh, with Hamas and things quieted down. So as of now, things in Israel are generally quiet and there hasn't been any uh, violence. And we just pray that that will continue to be the case. And we appreciate everyone that's been praying for Israel, praying for the peace of this nation and for the peace of Jerusalem. We ask you to continue to pray for this country and for all that the Lord is. And pray again that the Lord's purposes in his kingdom will be revealed in this nation and his purposes will be accomplished. Amen? Amen. Uh, tonight we're going to jump back to the series that we left off two weeks ago uh, called Moving Forward. We've been in the book of Nehemiah. Last week, Pastor Wayne uh, gave us a special message for the holiday of Shavuot. He talked about the Redeemer kinsman. But tonight we're going to jump back into our series from the book of Nehemiah. So before we get to our text tonight, let me just give you a little kind of recap of where we came from last time when Pastor Chad shared with us. Uh, he was in Nehemiah chapter 4. And when we left off, the, the walls are, are being built, progress is being made, but the workers are having to start to spread out. Um, so they're, they're getting further apart from one another to try and, and do the work together. And so Nehemiah encourages them that half of the men would work and half of the men would stand guard. And anyone that was carrying loads from one place to the other, he said, you, you do one, you work with one hand and you hold your weapon and the other. So this was where we left off in chapter four, that progress is happening. The people are working, the walls are being rebuilt. There's threats from outside. And, and so far in Nehemiah, and in this uh, account, most of the challenges thus far that they've encountered have been the enemies around them, people uh, threatening to attack them, threatening to uh, break down the wall, taunting them, <laughs> trying to get them to give up on the work. But tonight, as we jump into chapter five, we're going to see that Nehemiah faces one of the most challenging things that I think we can face as leaders. And that is an internal issue, an internal problem. And these can be some of the most challenging uh, situations that we can face if we're leaders of any entity or ministry or even in our own home. Uh, if we're leaders in our own home, we can, when we face internal challenges, they can be difficult. Why is that? Um, I believe because sometimes the correction that's needed to solve the conflict can cause pain to the body. And we don't like pain. And the best I can give an example for this is if we look at the physical body, sometimes when there's an internal issue, uh, what the doctors have to do is sometimes have to cut things out. Um, and this can cause, again, it can cause trauma, it can cause pain to the body. Treatments like chemotherapy uh, have to almost damage or, or weaken the entire system of the body to try and kill the, the, uh, the disease before it can begin to restore itself. So sometimes the solution to the internal conflict actually has the potential to, to cause harm or, or pain. And this brings leaders to weigh the outcome of what to do. 
Is it better to just let it be and ignore it and just, eh, just sweep it under the rug and let it be? Or is it better to act and risk that there's other or even potentially greater things that would arise? And so this is the challenge. So this is what we're going to look into tonight. And I, and I believe Nehemiah gives us a great example, actually, as leaders especially, of how to navigate these types of situations, even to preempt these. It, it would be like, uh, he, he gives us a, a way, as we, you'll see as we look at it, almost like a doctor telling you, eat healthy and live right. <laughs> and you can avoid the issue. He gives us some solutions that are actually kind of preemptive. So let's jump to our text tonight. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, your device, whatever you're going to be reading along with tonight, Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 1. It's on the screen for you. If you don't have a device tonight or don't have your Bible, you can read along with me. This is what it says, Nehemiah 5, beginning in verse 1. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we are sons and our daughters are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. And others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So let's look at this part of this passage a little bit more. It says, there was widespread outcry from the people. So what I take from that is this was affecting a good majority of the people. It was widespread. There was a good majority of the people that were being affected by the situation. And their complaints were, we are numerous, numerous and we need grain so that we can eat and live. We're having to mortgage our fields, vineyards, and homes in order to buy food. And we're having to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So, obviously there's a famine. Now, it doesn't give us the reason for the famine. We don't know for sure whether it was just a bad harvest. Perhaps... Uh, their enemies wouldn't trade with them. And so there was a limitation on what they were able to trade and, and get. Because again, we, knew, we already know their enemies didn't want them to succeed. So why not starve them? That would make sense, right? So, but we're not sure. It's, we're not given the reason for the famine. But although the famine was the initial cause, the people needed to buy grain and they're having to mortgage their homes. As we'll see from Nehemiah's response, it doesn't appear that it was the primary issue. Food actually wasn't the primary issue. There was something else. It was how they were being treated, those that were struggling, it was how they were being treated by their brothers. And we'll see here in a minute why that's so. I want to just look one more thing at verse 1. It says, it says a widespread outcry from the people and their wives. And I found that interesting. Why not just the people? Why add and their wives, because there's obviously a point to be made here. What's he getting at? Why does he add the addition rather than just the people? And I, I wondered about this, and I believe it's because there was great concern to what was happening to the children. 
I believe that's why he makes reference to this. The outcry was, was coming from the wives because there was concern. Because the situation had created circumstances where the people were being forced to subject their children to slavery. And they lamented, we have, they've lamented, we've become powerless to do anything about it because our fields and our vineyards now belong to others. And then in verse five, listen to this, listen to what's said in verse five. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children. And yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. I believe what's being said here is we love our kids as much as they do. But we're being forced to make a decision that they're not being forced to make regarding their children. And so there's a, there's a plea. And if you've ever heard the, the phrase, don't rob a mama bear of her cubs, it's not wisdom. That's in essence what was happening. Children were being taken from their mothers. And this is why I believe he notes the outcry was not just from the people, but the people and their wives. So where does this lead? Where, where is this leading the people, this powerlessness? And, and I believe it was leading them down the path of hopelessness. And unfortunately, hopelessness will produce indifference. Hopelessness will produce indifference. What do I mean by that? At some point, if this continues on and there's not a solution, the people are, are going to begin to say, what does, what does a wall matter? <laughs> if I have to sell my children into slavery and there's no future, what does a wall matter anything? There's no future. Why does it matter? Why do I continue to do this? And it would have brought the work to a, a halt. And Nehemiah already knew that he needed every person. They were already stretched out thin. He needed every person that was available to be able to help with the rebuilding of the wall. He couldn't afford for this to become something that would cause people to just give up. It would also feed into distrust. People wouldn't trust one another and they would refuse to work together. Now, how does this apply to us? I think there's a, what, uh, a spiritual application for this for us. How often does the enemy, especially in the community of faith, how often does he try to sow discord into the community of faith? How often does he try to sow injustice in a way to cause exactly that distrust, causing people to stop working together towards the common goal? Pastor Chad has said many times from this platform, and this is something I know he believes and we believe in as a ministry, we are better together. This is why we serve the wider body. This is why we serve other leaders and congregations. Uh, this past week, I was with um, one of our African congregations, Lift Up Our Heads in, in uh, Tel Aviv on Thursday. I was with their choir just to encourage them. Why? Because we have something to offer, to encourage, to help the wider body. We can do that because we are better together. We're stronger together. And Nehemiah knew this. If the people would begin to distrust one another and the people would begin to give up, they would become more vulnerable to their enemies. 
And if we allow distrust and if we allow discord and disunity to come in and enter into the community, it, it makes us more vulnerable. It isolates us. Pastor Chad talked about this a few weeks ago. He was talking about National Geographic and he said, watch, watch a lion on National Geographic. He singles that. They try to single out one animal, get it away from the herd, get it away from the protection of the group and attack it. And, and this is what happens as we begin to isolate ourselves, if we begin to, to separate the enemy can use this against us. And the enemy knows that. So this is one of the challenges. But I want to talk about something else that, that hit me as I was reading this passage. And that's this phrase that they said, but we are powerless. And I was reminded of something that I read recently. It was actually an article by a psychologist. So Catherine, you may have appreciate this. <laughs> um, it was, he was talking about um, trying to put words to what people were feeling through the restrictions and the lockdowns of COVID. And it really resonated with me because I think, again, this, the people that were struggling were feeling coming to the place almost of hopelessness. I don't know that they were quite there yet, but they were on the road to becoming hopeless about the future. They said, we're powerless and I, and I was reminded when, when the restrictions started and, and we were at home a lot and, and just isolated, I, I, I'll be honest, I'm going to raise my hand. I, I noticed that my motivation dropped. My focus dropped. Anybody else experience these kinds of things? Is just in the isolation. You, you started to feel things. And what, what I found interesting in this article is he put some words to these feelings. And I, I want to read something, some of it to you real quick. He said this. This is by a, a psychologist named Adam Grant. It was in the New York Times. Don't take that against me. But anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, if you're looking for the article, it was in the New York Times. It wasn't burnout because we still had energy. It wasn't depression because we didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless. It turns out there's a name for that. It's called languishing. <laughs> Languish, to lose, lack, lose or lack vitality, to grow weak or feeble. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. And it might be the dominant emotion of 2021. <laughs> he continues, in psychology, we think about mental health on a spectrum from depression to flourishing. Flourishing is the peak of well-being. You have a strong sense of meaning, mastery, and mattering to others. Depression is the valley of ill-being. You feel despondent, drained, and worthless. Languishing is the neglected middle child of mental health. It's the void between depression and flourishing. You're not functioning at full capacity. Languishing dulls your motivation. It disrupts your ability to focus. And it, listen to this, and it triples the odds that you'll cut back on work. It appears to be more common than major depression. And in some ways, it may be a bigger risk factor for mental illness. I just thought that he did a good job of putting words to the feelings. It's not depression, 
but it's not the joy of fulfillment. It's somewhere in between. And it's just like, I don't have focus. And, and I believe this was where we find the people that are crying out to Nehemiah. They are fast moving on a train towards hopelessness. But right now they're saying, this, this is a problem, Nehemiah, and you're going to have to do something about it. Now, I find it interesting that in this article, the way he suggests or the way he encourages people to work through this feeling of languish is he said, focus on accomplishing small goals, small wins. Focus on things that you can get a win in. Move, make some forward progress. This is his suggestion. Accomplish something meaningful to challenge your resolve. Now, I'm grateful to see so many of you here in this place tonight. And what's interesting is I think it took a little while for many of you to make the choice that I'm going to go back. (laughs) I'm going to go back. And there may be people that are watching tonight that are still wrestling with that choice. But take a step. Make a decision. Make a small victory for yourself. And it's interesting that this is exactly what I believe Nehemiah did. Nehemiah addressed the problem for the people that were struggling to give them a win, to move them beyond the situation. And let's look at that. Let's continue on in our text tonight in verse 6. Listen to what he says. This is Nehemiah in verse 6 of chapter 5. I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who who were sold to foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. Then I said, what you are doing isn't right. Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please, let us stop charging this interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive gardens, olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil that you have been assessing them. So we see that the root of the problem was this interest charge and and just kind of sticking it to the ones that were struggling in a way. And he says, this isn't right. What you're doing isn't right. And he was extremely angered. But he didn't, look at, look at verse seven. He didn't act on his emotion. <laughs> he was angry, but he says, after seriously considering the matter, he stepped back for a moment and he considered what was before him. And then he responded, Let's fix this by doing the right thing. Let's get everyone back to work. Let's get back focused on the objective and what we need to accomplish. Now, the Hebrew word here that's translated as accused, which is in uh, verse seven here, I accuse the nobles and officials. This word actually translates to a legal action or a legal, a legal case. Uh, he, he actually brings a legal argument against these people. And if you remember from our our first message in this, 
Nehemiah knew the word of God. This is why he was moved to come back and to work to restore the walls of Jerusalem because he knew what the word of God said the restoration should be like and that's not what he saw happening in Jerusalem. And God positioned him. He knew God had positioned him. He knew the word of God and in this instance, he knew the word of God because what was the legal charge that he brought against them? Let's look at Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19. Do not charge your brother interest on money, food, or anything that you can earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you must not charge your brother interest so that the Lord, your God, may bless you in everything you do in the land you are entering to possess. So he presented the legal case before them. Look, you are violating the law that God gave us that said don't do this, and we are running the risk of God not blessing us in his land and causing distress, and you could potentially cause us to become vulnerable to our enemies. Let's continue in verse seven of Nehemiah chapter five. He says, so I called a large assembly against them and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now you sell them your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. And they remained silent and could not say a word. So he spoke the truth to them. He challenged them legally and they couldn't say anything. And there's a reason to it. It wasn't just the legal argument. It wasn't just that he presented a good legal argument that they were silent. The reason why they couldn't say anything, and we'll see this in the next part of this passage, is it spoke to the very character of who Nehemiah was. In verse 14, if we jump down a little bit to verse 14 of chapter five, Nehemiah rewinds the clock a little bit and gives us a glimpse of before the incident, gives us a little glimpse into his life and rewinds the clock and he says this in verse 14. Furthermore, from the day that King Artaxerxes appointed me to be the gov- their governor in the land of Judah, From the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governors. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking food and wine from them, as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but I didn't do this. Listen, because of the fear of God. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of the wall. And all my subordinates were gathered there for their work. We didn't buy any land. So what he does is he kind of says, let me back up for you a little bit in the story. This is how I lived my life. All of the governors that came before me abused the people. They took from them, they assessed taxes from them. They took even more than what was allotted to them. When I took over as governor, I didn't even take what was rightfully mine because my focus and my attention was on what is the purpose that God brought me here. We're here to rebuild the wall. I'm going to put myself into this, not into my own interests. And this gave Nehemiah, an incredible preemptive power. And I'm going to call it moral authority. 
It gave him the moral authority to speak to this issue and they were silent. They had nothing to say. Why? Because he offered an example of how to live before he even had to offer the discipline. He had lived in such a way that exampled what the right way to act was concerning their brethren. Now, we can't assume that his life was perfect, and I'm sure it wasn't. But what we know is he made his decisions based on the fear of the Lord. And as you know, the fear of the Lord, as Proverbs describes it, is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of the ability to make good choices. And his choices and his focus allowed him to do the right things. In essence, he was saying to these other brothers, did I treat you that way? Did I do that to you? I could have easily, by my right, have taken from you but I didn't. So who do you think you are to treat your brothers this way? Now, this is a hard topic <laughs> and it's difficult, but why, why do leaders lose their moral authority? Or how do leaders lose their moral authority? Well, I think we get the answer by looking at the opposite of what we see here with Nehemiah. When leaders allow their personal interests to take priority over the good of others, they sacrifice or they give up their moral authority. When my own interests become the, the main thing, my prosperity or, or whatever it may be, becomes the priority before the good of the people, I sacrifice my moral authority. Where else do we see this? Hmm. Yeshua said to his believer, to his, his disciples, it's recorded in John chapter 13, verse 34. He said, a new commandment I give you. New commandment. Love one another. They're like, well, that's not new. He said, wait a minute. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must love one another. I gave everything for you. I sacrificed my own self-interests for you. This is how you're to live towards your brother. That's the example we've been given. That's the example we're challenged. It's difficult. It's hard. But this is the challenge. This is the example that's been put before us of how we should live in relationship with our brothers and sisters. Now, make no mistake, uh, Nehemiah's choices and his focus did not mean that he lived a life of poverty. Didn't mean that. I want you to read along with me, and we're going to see this. In verse 17, we'll back up a little bit. In verse 17 of chapter 5, listen to this. There were 150 Jews and officials as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. 
Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days. But I didn't demand the food it allotted to the governor because the burden of the people was so heavy. In other words, I had what I needed. I wasn't, I wasn't, I had, I had enough to feed 150 people at my table. I didn't need to take more. God was giving me what I needed. I was provided for. I didn't need to put a heavier burden on the people just because I could do it. Now, let's get back to the people's response to Nehemiah in verse 12 of chapter five. They responded, we will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. And I also shook the folds of my robe and said, may God likewise shake from, my ha- from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. This was a, a tradition. Sometimes they would hold things in, in their garment, like a pocket, and he shook it. And he says, if, if you don't keep your word on this, may God shake you out like he would shake everything out of his pile, like empty. And may you be removed from his promise. And it says, the whole assembly said, amen. Okay, we agree. Let it be so. And they praised the Lord and the people. And then it's recorded that the people did as they had promised. So they followed through. And they returned the land to their brothers and sisters. And they followed through on their promise to do the right thing. Now, again, I can imagine that this conversation could have gone completely different if Nehemiah didn't have the moral authority. I could imagine the conversation would have been, well, who are you to tell us? Look what you're doing. (laughs) Who are you to tell us anything? But it didn't. So, we see a great example if we're obedient to what God has called us to, if we're obedient to how he's called us to live, how we can preempt internal struggles. And if they come, we have the moral authority to deal with them rightly, to deal with them justly, to correct the situation Nehemiah concludes this chapter, and this is going to close for us tonight. In verse 19, he says, Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. God, don't forget all the things that I've done. I have tried to do the right thing, God. I've tried to live according to your will, to your purpose. And I believe God honored his prayer. We're here tonight talking about it. People throughout centuries of time have looked at this and talked about it. And I believe in a way that's God honoring Nehemiah. You haven't been forgotten. What you've done in your life are not forgotten, Nehemiah. And I believe this is a prayer we can all aspire to. We, we pray something I actually got from a pastor that I was raised under. He, he had written a little, this size page, document called a prescription for daily living. <laughs> and 
It was a few words, and one of the things was something to close your day with in the end and at night. And we, we actually pray with our children. And it generally says this, I've done the best I could today as God has guided me, and I, I leave the results with him. God, I, I've done the best that I could today to be obedient to your direction, to your calling on my life, to your commandments, to what you've called us to live. And now, God, I, I put the results in your hands. May they be favorable in your eyes. God, don't let me fall into indifference. Don't let me go down that road towards hopelessness. But help me today to find those little wins. Help me to live correctly. Help me to do the best with the work that you've given me to do. Don't allow me to separate myself from my brothers or sisters because we're better together. We're stronger together. And Lord, help me to stay focused, not to be afraid of either external or internal conflicts. But Lord, help me to live my life. Help me to live my life in a way that would inspire others to make right choices. So that when I have to bring correction, that people would say, you're right. <laughs> you're right. I see it. And I think that's something we can all aspire to. God, help us in these things. So let's pray tonight. I'm gonna ask the worship team to just close us with a time of worship, but let's just close tonight with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this account that's recorded for us, Lord, and the lessons that we can glean from it. We thank you that we can look at the life of Nehemiah and we can be inspired. God, that we can draw lessons on how we should live together. And I do pray, Lord, for each person here, for each person online, God, that you would help us in our focus to do the things that you've called us to do, to, to live in such a way that it's an inspiration to those around us, to, to live right, to live correctly, to follow you and follow your word. God, would you empower us by your Holy Spirit? Would you move in our midst? Would you do the things that only you can do, God? And Lord, help us to come alongside you and do the things that you've called us to do. And we ask it tonight in the mighty and powerful name of Yeshua. Amen.